Hi, Hillary. Hey, Rachel. This is so exciting and scary. The only reason it's scary, I actually woke up in the middle of the night and realized I was dreaming about this conversation. <laughs> and <laughs> What was your dream? <laughs> well, in the dream, I was just starting it over and over in different ways. Uh-huh. And like, and then I would sort of, I think, sort of half wake up and go back to sleep and think like, oh, that's the right way to start it. That's the right way to start it. But one of the ways in which I started it in my dream was I said to you, you should make, you should write a book called Weird Podcasting Wins. <laughs> and then you said to me something like, well, it would help if you didn't set up your mics that way. Oh. And that woke me up. And I was like, oh, I think I'm a little nervous about like interviewing someone who's done this for a really long time and has a lot of experience with this. Yeah. Podcasting tip number one, set up your mics right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So here is how I'm actually going to start. Hello, and welcome to episode 65 of Commonplace, conversations with poets and other people. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. Hillary Frank, who you just heard, is an author, illustrator, and mother and the founder and former host of the fabulous podcast, The Longest Shortest Time. I first heard Hillary's podcast when my friend and collaborator, poet Ariel Greenberg, spoke to Hillary about the birth of her stillborn son, Day. I quickly became a dedicated listener of The Longest Shortest Time, which I highly recommend even if you're not a parent. It's a great podcast, beautifully and thoughtfully produced, and covers a wide range of topics, such as reproductive health, racism, sex, raising an LGBTQ child, LGBTQ family-making and parenting, affairs, parental leave, white guilt, chromosomal differences, and so much more. About two years ago, shortly after starting Commonplace, I was asked to be on a panel with Hillary as part of a podcasting conference at Columbia University. In the midst of fangirling all over Hillary about her podcast, Hillary revealed to me that a friend had sent her my book, Museum of Accidents, not long after Hillary's daughter was born, and it meant so much to Hillary that she'd bought copies of it for her other friends. So mutual admiration led to a correspondence, and then last year, I agreed to be a guest on The Longest Shortest Time. Hillary was and still is a producer of LST, but she had handed the host mic over to Andrea Salenzi. I talk about my relationship with my mother and my book Mothers for the 2018 Mother's Day episode of LST. It was terrifying and fascinating turning the story over to Andrea and Hillary, allowing them to produce and control my telling for the episode. It was also healing and freeing and taught me so much as a podcaster and writer. Since meeting Hillary, I've been hoping to get her on Commonplace. And on July 20th, 2019, she came to my apartment and we hung out for a few hours talking about podcasting, writing, misogyny and media, and how to navigate the waters of wanting to protect your child's privacy while also wanting to tell stories that need to be told, telling stories that might be difficult to tell. Before starting Longest Shortest Time, Hillary wrote three YA novels, The View from the Top, I Can't Tell You, and Better Than Running at Night. Her newest book, Weird Parenting Wins, came out just last month. 
Hillary and I talk about her new book, her experience working in many genres, and about whether the various forms of storytelling, poems, narrative audio, interviewing, fiction, nonfiction, visual art, have or should have different ethical guidelines and different considerations around privacy. Among other great stories you'll hear in this episode, you'll hear about how, after a career in public radio, Hillary launched her podcast, how she found a home for it, and how she got sponsors. As you probably know, here at Commonplace, we don't have any sponsors and rely solely on patrons to support the show. So if you're not already a patron of Commonplace, please visit patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast or go to our website, commonpodcast.com, to become a patron and support the show. Some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive, in honor of this episode, I Can't Tell You and Better Than Running at Night, courtesy of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and Weird Parenting Wins, courtesy of Tarcher Perigee. Many thanks to Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, Tarcher Perigee, for these fabulous books, to our current and future patrons, and to all of you who review Commonplace on iTunes, recommend it to others, and write or tweet us words of support. And now, lucky listener, here is episode 65 with Hillary Frank. So I hope at some point we talk about um, your op-ed piece um, mm-hmm. in the New York Times, obviously your new book, Weird Parenting Wins. I'm excited, of course, to talk to you about The Longest Shortest Time, and then also these larger themes of privacy, um, being public, the many different forms that you have engaged in as an artist, and whether those forms have different requirements, different advantages, different risks. And also, I think about motherhood, womanhood, um, storytelling, like the underlying reason for why you would do any of the things that you do. Okay. But I think that where I'd like to start, in part because I think people won't know necessarily how you got to be at this moment in your life Mm -hmm. or why we are in the room together and why you would agree to be (laughs) on like a primarily poetry podcast and why I would ask you to be on this poetry podcast. So I was hoping you would just sort of talk about kind of like how you came to be the author of Weird Parenting Wins and, you know, some of the things you did along the way. Sure. Yeah. So... I got started in a really unusual way. Like usually the way you get started in radio is to have an unpaid internship and to just make yourself indispensable to the people at the radio station and work your way up. I couldn't afford to do that. And so I decided I would trick my way in. And so what I did was, and this is going to date me, but you know, (laughs) there's lots of cool technology in this story. (laughs) Um, I started out by using a microcassette answering machine and a shiny red boom box. And what I did was I emailed This American Life. It was very early on in the show's existence, and they had this message on their site that said you could email any question to Ira Glass and he would respond to you. And so... (laughs) I sent an email saying, like, I'm a writer, 
And I want to know if you can like put me on whatever list you have to, to notify people about what themes you're working on. And the only thing that made me a writer was that I wrote things down. I was not published in any way. And so some um, office manager sent me an email back saying like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll put you on the contributors list, <laughs> which is not something that would happen now. And I started sending in submissions. I started sending in like written essays and they all got rejected, but I was getting these personalized rejection letters that would be like their form letter, but it would have a handwritten note on the side that would say like, here's why it doesn't work for us, but we like this about it. And um, I really took those notes to heart and just kept trying to improve, got rejected a lot. And then I thought, well, what if I send them something in audio? And one of these contributor lists came through and it had the topic of apocalypse. And I had a friend who was obsessed with the end of the world, but in a secular way. He was obsessed with like, how would he survive if the world ended? So for example, he would go running every day because what if the world ended and he was being chased by wild dogs? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Stuff like that. So I called him up and I recorded it using my parents' microcassette answering machine. And then I made it sound like a This American Life story by reading my narration into this shiny red boombox and then feeding the bits from the, the tape from the conversation with my friend from the microcassette into the boombox. And you could hear all the clicks and pops. It sounded very amateurish, but it also sort of sounded like a story on This American Life. I FedExed it to the senior producer <laughs> and I got a call back on on my answering machine from Ira Glass saying like, who are you? How did you figure out how to make a story that sounds like it should be on our show? Um, and I called him back from a payphone <laughs> at a cadaver workshop in New York City because I was in grad school um, for drawing and studying anatomy. And on our lunch break, I gave him a call. And he said he wanted me to start sending him pitches to contribute to the show. And I did. And my first story that went on the air was using the boombox and answering machine style. And then I became a contributor, a regular contributor to that show. And I became a contributor to many other public radio shows. So when you gutsily wrote to and said, can I be on the contributors list and called yourself a writer? Mm -hmm. What gave you the confidence to call yourself a writer when you were a person who wrote things down? And, mm -hmm. and, were, and you were in graduate school for drawing at that point? I wasn't even yet. No. I had just graduated college. <laughs> Where were you I was living? Fresh out what of college. were you doing? I was, <laughs> I was living in Boston uh -huh. um, and working as a staff assistant to two doctors at Harvard Medical School. Wow. And it is possible that I wrote that email while I was at that job, like at my desk. And why, what was it that made you even interested in trying to be a contributor on This American Life? I knew that I wanted to be a writer of some kind. Mm -hmm. And I had been imagining that I would be someone who combined writing and pictures, writing and drawing. Mm -hmm. In some way, I sort of imagined being like the next Edward Gorey would be my dream. But also 
This American Life was really new and I was just starting to hear it. And I thought, oh, maybe that's a thing I could do. And I had always been a really quiet person. It also felt like a like a personal challenge to try to tell stories with my own voice. But to answer your question about what gave me the confidence to say I was a writer, it wasn't so much confidence as just like really consciously trying to trick my way in. Mm. <laughs> just like saying like, hey, I'm a writer. Put me on the list. I didn't right. think it would really work. <laughs> What made you decide to go to graduate school in drawing as opposed to, say, writing? Yeah, so I went to Tufts where they have a combined dual degree program with the museum school. So you get a BA and a BFA. Mm -hmm. And it takes five years. And I discovered while I was there that the museum school was mostly a performance art school. And I was doing things like rolling around the floor and screaming, which was like not what I wanted to be doing. And I always, I always like, I hated it. <laughs> and and so I dropped that part of the program. So I felt like at Tufts, I did get a good foundation in writing, but I did not feel like I got a good foundation in drawing. And that was the other piece of what I wanted to do. So I went to grad school for drawing. So interesting. I feel like there's some people who go to school for the thing they're best at and other people who feel like they go to school for the thing they want to get better at. And that's always an interesting mm -hmm. like dividing point, I feel like, between artists. Um, but okay, back to the timeline. So you were contributing to all of these different shows. Did you, you had a regular job? Actually, can I back up for yes, a second? Because I want to tell you, since you have a writing podcast, one of the things that maybe made me feel like I could be a writer was when I was in college, I had a teacher who like he, he was teaching short stories like as, as literature. Mm -hmm. Like so, so we had to write papers about the short stories. I was not very good at writing analytical papers about writing, but he was like, I have a feeling you're going to be really good at actually writing fiction. Hmm. And there was a point in that class where we were supposed to write our own story. And I wrote it and I handed it in to him and I was so excited. And he came back to me and he was like, this is garbage. <gasps> I don't know if he used that exact word. <laughs> Are but you, can, can you tell me who it is or no? His name is Morse Hamilton okay. and he is no longer with us. He was mm. my favorite teacher. Mm. Um, great young adult writer. Mm. So he was like, he was so disappointed. I'm pretty sure that that story ended with a girl like hanging herself oh, in the woods. Like, because I don't know, I thought you're supposed to be dramatic. <laughs> and um, thank God the story of the teacher telling you it was garbage didn't end with a girl hanging herself in the woods. That story that you handed in ended right. that way. I was like, yes. oh my yeah. God. No, no, no. Okay. So the story ended that way. It was garbage. He was right. So he was like, I just, I really thought you would be so much better at this. And I think, <laughs> and I think you could be, <laughs> you got to work on it though. And I took that as a challenge. Mm. And I think that that has been a thing I've done over and over again in my career is being very driven by wanting to prove people wrong. Did you have a job when mm. you were contributing to these different radio shows? At different times, I had different kinds of jobs, but never like a really big full-time job, except for the one when I was a staff assistant at Harvard Medical School for a year before I went to graduate school. And then I got my first book deal 
and I got on This American Life in my second year of grad school for drawing. Mm. So then right after that, I got a fellowship at This American Life, which is basically like their internship, but it's paid. Mm. And then I stayed on and helped them with grants while I was freelancing for a lot of different shows. And so I was just cobbling a lot of stuff together and barely getting by financially. And your first book came out during that period of time. That's right. Yeah. The next thing you said was, and then I had a baby, but I'm curious to know how many years you were kind of writing, publishing these YA books. Um, You were illustrating as well during that time and working for This American Life and, Mm -hmm. and other kinds of radio. Like how long was that period of time? So I first got on This American Life in 1999 and I had a baby in 2010 solid decade yeah of cobbling things together okay yeah so you had your baby mm-hmm. and uh continue so i had my baby and it was a rough um delivery and recovery and i had to move 4 months after my baby was born to a town where i knew nobody mm. because my husband had gotten a new job he he got a job at this american life he had previously been working at Fresh Air in Philadelphia, and he got offered the job the week my daughter was born. Mm. (laughs) And it just, it was clear, like, we had to do this, but the timing was a little insane. So we moved, and I I couldn't walk for the first two months of my daughter's life because of my birth injury. Mm. So when we we moved to a place, we moved to the suburbs. We knew more people in the city, but we moved to the suburbs because I didn't want to have to deal with stairs, Mm. um, like going up and down subway stairs or like a fourth floor walk up or something like that. So we went to New Jersey, and I didn't know anybody, and I was trying to meet people. And I would have these interactions with other moms where I would like say be at a coffee shop and I would say – to a mom with a little baby, like, oh, wow, well, look at you. You're out and about. And she would be like, well, it's been two weeks. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> how do, where do we go from there? Conversation over. But I knew because I did have this decade of experience of interviewing people that if you stick a microphone under somebody's face, that you have license to ask them anything. And they don't have to answer you, but I also found that people are more likely to open up with you and have deeper conversations if you're on a microphone. So I simultaneously was thinking about how the months were passing by and I hadn't been working and technology was changing. And I had heard a lot about how hard it is for moms to get a job after being on maternity leave and particularly like I had always been a freelancer. I didn't have a job to go back to. So I was trying to like make a project that would be like my calling card to show people that I could still work. And what I really wanted to do was be an editor. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, to help people with their own storytelling. This is something I had done at Weekend America. Weekend America was a great public radio show on the weekends with American Public Media, and um, they really allowed people to have a lot of creativity. And so I was an editor there and a contributor and just loved it. So I wanted to sort of get that back. And 
I created the longest, shortest time as um, my way of proving that like I'm still with it. I can I can still make compelling work and hire me. Mm-hmm. So I started doing that. Uh, and what it was was me interviewing other parents. At that time, it was um, all about early parenthood. But I was I was asking people to tell me surprising stories about struggles in parenthood and how the struggle would feel like it was never ending. And then in retrospect, it would feel like a blip. And that's the meaning of the longest, shortest time. So for people who don't know anything about radio, about podcasts, what does it mean to be an editor in that context rather than, you know, a a book editor? Right. So in radio and podcasting, when you're an editor, you have your reporter or your writer um, who goes out and gets their tape and writes their script. And then they bring you a draft and you go through several drafts usually um, where they're playing you stuff, usually remotely, like over the phone. Um, They'll read their narration and then fire the clips Mm -hmm. and then me as an editor, I would sit there and listen and give them notes. Mm. And then we do several drafts. And then the last round is usually a line edit where it's all, they're not reading it anymore. I'm just going through it on the screen. So initially was the longest, shortest time going to be a regular segment on the show? Or was it going to be one like episode or show? So, well, so I started um, the longest, shortest time as a podcast Ah. and didn't have a plan at all. Uh I thought, well, I'll just do it whenever I can. Mm -hmm. I wasn't making money on it and I would squeeze it in. I also couldn't afford um, like regular childcare. So I would squeeze it in whenever my daughter was napping, which in the beginning was like briefly and infrequently, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like 20 minutes at a time here and there. By the way, we are recording this while my child is napping. Yes. But he's 18. Your grown child. (laughs) It's true. Which is just funny. Do you think he might wake up and start crying and need to be fed? I'm very very confused about, very concerned about that. Um, Okay, sorry. Yeah. Was it remote? It was, were you recording them over the phone? Yeah, so I would try and line up uh, times with Mm -hmm. moms who also had their children napping at the same time. We would try to find our like Venn diagram Uh of like the times that would match up. Or sometimes we would just be like holding the kids while we were talking. Mm. I remember I used to sometimes set up my daughter's little like Ikea play tent and sit in there (laughs) and record people. So yeah, it it was, I was using professional equipment, but in unprofessional circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so you made like full episodes, Mm -hmm. but didn't have any place to air them. Yeah, or make money off of it, you know, and and so that was something I was like, well, I'll start by trying to freelance again. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the cool things I had always found about public radio was that no one ever really told me any of my ideas were too weird or like too niche. Mm. Like I had sort of developed a beat um, on teenagers. Mm -hmm. Really, I think people thought of me for that because I had done these young adult novels. Mm. And so when they wanted to do a story about teenagers, I would get the assignment and they were fun. I loved talking to teenagers. And then sometimes I would pitch stuff and it was a little like off the beaten path. And I think that's what people liked about working with me. And that's why I was rising in the ranks. And so when I started doing stories about motherhood and parenthood, 
I just approached it the same way. I was like, here's a surprising story about motherhood. Do you want to put it on your show? I can cut it down. And I would go to like the editors I had worked with at different shows. But what I was finding is that no one wanted to air them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that brings us actually to your recent op-ed piece in the New York Times, Mm -hmm. which was fantastic um, and sort of tells the story of this period of your life, Mm -hmm. even though you just sort of became public with this Mm -hmm. part of it. So I would love to hear you talk about that. Yeah. So um, I started pitching this stuff around. And the first thing that happened was I had this longtime editor who I was really close with. And I I sent him some samples. And I know one of them was the one I was most proud of included a top, which is just a few minutes of me like monologuing talking about my experience of childbirth Mm -hmm. and how I had felt going into it extremely strong and just like physically strong. I've always felt like, like I'm physically strong. Like I could do the hang longer than all the popular girls in, in like the president's physical fitness test. So when I had heard that like in childbirth, uh, people get C-sections and um, have to get epidurals and stuff. I was like, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to have any interventions <laughs> because I'm strong. And I didn't imagine any alternative. And it turned out that um, that wasn't the case for me. And I did get an epidural and I did get surgery. I had an episiotomy. And that's what made things difficult for me later because that, the healing was tough. And so I talked about that stuff in the top of this show, and then I, I wound up saying, like in a pretty vulnerable voice, that I felt like I had failed at childbirth. Mm. And the response that I got back, my editor took that piece and sent it around to like the decision makers at the company where he was working, and he said, you know, they just don't see a place for this. And one of the guys actually said, you sound like a little girl. And he was kind of like, I don't, I don't know what to make of it. I don't think you sound that way, but that's what he said. And that's the reason they're giving me. Mm. And at the time I was like, well, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly because I have kind of a deep voice and I'd never been told that before. I, I know that lots of women get comments on their voices on the radio that had never happened to me before as far as I know. It may have happened in comments somewhere, but no one directly had ever made that kind of comment to me. So I kind of let it go and I kept going. And then I tried to pitch this around to other shows. And I kept getting like rejection after rejection for different reasons. It would be like, yeah, we just sort of don't think this is for a general audience. Like it's great stuff, but it's like, seems like it's for an audience of moms and like who would want to listen to this other than moms? And I was like, huh, okay. And I just sort of just took it and was like, all right, rolling with that, going to try something else. And then once I had done the show for like three years and like I said, doing it just whenever I could. So it was only 20 episodes over the three years, but still it was like a solid portfolio. And um, I had been watching like Roman Mars of 99% Invisible did a Kickstarter that was very successful and made it so that he could make his podcast his full-time job. 
And I was like, well, maybe I'll try that. Because in the meantime, I had been tutoring kids on their college essays, which was also actually pretty fun. But um, it was clear I couldn't do both. And I was going to have to stop doing the podcast if I couldn't make money at it. So I decided to do the Kickstarter. And I was also told to lower my expectations <laughs> by like some people who who work in the field and had experience like helping people make Kickstarters. I wanted my goal, my goal to be $20,000 to make six months of episodes. I would be putting them out every other week. So 12 episodes. And I was told to lower my expectations and ask for more like 8,000. And I was like, well, but once you give all the fees to Kickstarter and Amazon and I deliver on my rewards to people, what's really left for me for six months of my time, which would be full time. Mm -hmm. So I decided to just go for it with the 20,000 and the way that I made that goal and blew past it by $10,000 was I um, reached out, cold called a bunch of brands that I felt had um, supported me as a mother hmm. at a time when I really needed support. So I reached out to diapers.com. I reached out to Medela, Ergo Baby, and a, like a bunch of others. And almost all of them said yes. They had never supported any podcasts. Remember, podcasting was a different beast, yep. too, in uh, this this would have been 2012, 13. And the way I got through to them was um, instead of sending emails, because I figured like no one's going to read an email from me, I would just call these companies at their main number and ask to speak to the head of marketing. And they would transfer me to the phone number. <laughs> And I knew no one was going to pick up the phone. And so I was like, well, I'm selling my ability to tell a story with my own voice. And so I just left them voicemails, like telling them my story and asking for their support. And I asked for like $5,000 here and there, mm -hmm. like four to $5,000, because for them, that's nothing. For me, it was everything. And I would do it like matching grants. So like when I made $5,000 from um, my audience, diapers.com would pitch in $5,000. Awesome. And then it would make it jump and people would get excited. And then so we did a bunch of those. So I sort of proved not only that I could make work that people wanted and, and could listen to, I could get money from companies. I could do this without the support of public radio. Mm. And that's when WMIC became interested in working with me. Because <laughs> they realized you had an audience. Yeah. That before you even were on the air, basically. Right. They, they came knocking. And then I was also trying some other places. And I still was being told, like, what you're doing is small. Mm -hmm. I wish I could support this, but it's just too small. So this is what I wrote this uh, op-ed about. And I didn't put all these things together into like labeling it misogyny against mothers in media until like a couple of years ago, I was having lunch with a friend, like a male friend who works in podcasting, who does not have children. 
you know, we have the kind of relationship where like we rant to each other. And I went on this rant about all these things that people had said to me. And he was like, this is an op-ed. Mm. You have to write this as an op-ed. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm not doing that because no one will ever want to work with me again. Like everyone is implicated in this and people are going to recognize themselves and I can't do it. And then like a year ago, I wrote a draft of it. So I was like, I just want to see what it all looks like mm-hmm. written down. And I still didn't do anything with it because I was too scared. Um, but then I don't know if it's like putting this book out, Weird Parenting Wins, or like just sort of realizing that I've reached a point where I'm pretty secure in my job and my work. And I think I've sort of passed a point where people wouldn't want to work with me because I call out this misogyny. Also, you know, Me Too and Time's Up became big. And I think I wouldn't have like thought to write this before that stuff happened. So it's it's only been out for about a week. Mm-hmm. Have you had any negative feedback? You know, no. And I haven't read the comments at the New York Times. Mm. But to me directly, no. And in fact, I had one um, person reach out to me who I do reference in the article. And it is the only woman Mm. who I reference. And it's an editor at NPR who had told me that they couldn't put a story on the air about like women's sexual dysfunction after childbirth because we can't talk about sex on the radio. And I was proposing something that was very like clinical, um, exploring like why more women and doctors don't know about pelvic floor physical therapy. So she just said like, I really, I really wish we could put this on, but we can't talk about sex on the radio. We can't even do it on the weekend. Mm. So she reached out to me after reading the article pretty soon after it came out and was like, I'm so glad you wrote this. And I really hope that it moves the dial at NPR and beyond. Mm-hmm. So both of us are on this listserv called Ladio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've seen, you know, this very positive, grateful response there from women in radio. I imagine you've gotten much, much more positive response from your colleagues or from other uh, women and men, I assume, in radio. Yeah, Yeah. like some notable things are I'm hearing from a lot of younger women who are starting out in radio right now, and they're expressing a lot of gratitude. And they haven't specifically said this, but I wonder if it's because some of them are um, deciding whether or not they want to have kids Mm -hmm. and also feeling like that would be challenging in media. (laughs) And, and so reading something like this is like emboldening them to help them make that decision. Um, I also heard from a guy who like is a, like a big wig in radio and podcasting. And he texted me and said, um, your article was, ballet and thought-provoking and at first (laughs) I was like oh that's like such a poetic way to describe it (laughs) um and then he texted me right back and said my phone auto-corrected ballsy to ballet (laughs) oh my god the phone I know the phone also wants moms to be more dainty 
more ballet and less ballsy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's so interesting because my 19-year-old son uh, had come across the article without my mentioning it at all. And then and then I was talking about the other night. I'm like, guys, you know, Hillary Frank is coming over and I'm going to talk to her. And she just came out with this op-ed and, and Moses was like, oh, yeah, I read that. Um, and today I said to him this morning, like, can you look at it again and just think about if you have any questions from your own perspective. And so mm. we were both at home, but he texts me sometimes from room to room. Uh -huh. This doesn't come up quite as much as I wish in weird parenting wins. Like the like sometimes the good aspects of texting your child from the other room <laughs> instead of, uh -huh. <laughs> of Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it really it actually is good. But he said uh, he wrote, um, I guess as a non-mother, I want to know whether there are aspects of motherhood that everyone should know about. Every human being. Like, not only do I assume that it's an underrepresented topic, but I think it probably should be overrepresented. And I wonder what is it about motherhood that must frighten people that we don't even want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I think that it's more clear for women and girls the cost, I still want to talk about this, but it's more clear that there is an enormous cost to the history of like feeling that you don't see yourself represented in the media. You don't hear stories of, you know, what your future might be like or what your present is like. And you feel all alone in what your experience is because those stories aren't there. But I think there's also a tremendous cost to men and boys in not having any idea you know, these stories, particularly about motherhood. And I don't, I didn't quite know how to answer him in that moment, even though to some extent my whole life's work has been about talking about those very things. But I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. Like, what is the cost in a way to men and to people, to human beings that like, what are we really missing when we don't have stories about motherhood? I think a couple things. I mean, I think on a practical level, family leave would be totally different if more men and just people in general before they had kids understood what parenthood is really like mm. um, and why we have that leave, that it's not just a vacation or a break or like cooing with your baby. You know, at the longest, shortest time, we did a whole series on discrimination against moms in the workplace called It's a Real Mother. And one of the top things I learned is that the biggest thing people can do to change parental leave is for men, for dads to take all of their paternity leave, to set an example that that's important and to not, you know, play like it's like have machismo around not taking it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so men play a really vital role in that. But as far as being a parent, I also think like – when I was on Fresh Air, Terry Gross asked me about like whether my daughter had read my book or mm. was going to and how I was um, going to convey my story to her and that it might be upsetting for her to learn these things. And after the fact, I started thinking about like, well, what if we all knew the story of how we got here? Mm -hmm. Not in an upsetting way, but just to understand that we played a role in that as little babies like coming into the world but like we didn't just like pop out there there's a story behind it and like the first months of our lives what what were those like we tend to not know those stories and 
I don't know the answer. It's impossible to know the answer of how life would be different if we knew those things, but I think it's worth well, thinking it, about. It's super worth thinking about. I mean, you, you're making me remember, I think I'm going to say this correctly, but but one of sort of the central theories behind like Adrian Rich's understanding of misogyny and uh, the way that the patriarchy kind of has come to be has to do with the theory that's not only hers, that there's something so psychically terrifying, particularly for men, to think about the fact that at one point in time, they were so vulnerable, completely incapable of keeping themselves alive and that for most human beings, there was a woman who cared for them as infants, you know, and for all gave birth to them. And that that that's so terrifying that there's like some kind of uh, need to control women's fertility, certainly, but also the story of women's experience, desire, birth, all of those things. So it strikes me that you know, certainly part of the way the patriarchy maintains control is to control what stories women are allowed to tell and hear. Mm -hmm. But also, if there was just a very common expectation that all children, boys and girls, would have more access to like where they came from and what it was like and what it was like in those early days and not to have a kind of uh like post-victorian like it was so great you you showed up and you know every moment that I was with you was just the most <laughs> interesting and beautiful time it was like no I was freaking tired you know that that I guess I mean it would certainly be helpful for women um but I think maybe it would reduce that kind of like fear, if that's even actually real, if that's really at the root of it. I mean, when I came back into the room after this texting, uh, Moses said to me, well, why isn't every sitcom about getting your period? And I was because like- Because he wants that? He Well, he said, he was like, it's so interesting. Like, that not that kind of, like, wouldn't that be the funniest thing? Because it's so common. You guys just did a show about really interesting show about periods and, and one woman's story in particular. And I was so grateful to hear that. I mean, I, I, I you know, because I've mentioned this to you before. I'm like, where are the peri perimenopause stories? Like, why is nobody <laughs> talking about this? Because that's, I mean, at this stage in my life, I'm like, I mean, anybody who's going to talk to me knows they're going to have to talk about birth and babies and mm -hmm. motherhood and, you know, sex and whatever. Mm -hmm. But still, nobody, nobody is talking about perimenopause, menopause, and mostly periods. And you guys just mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. So I think that the question was sort of like, I mean, I realize when he asked me that today, I have three sons. And I went to great lengths to make sure that they never saw my tampons. Mm. And and I remember there was like a few times where there was like blood in the toilet. Maybe I hadn't flushed all the way or whatever. And they were surprised and concerned. Yeah. I told them, this is normal. It's okay. I'm fine. But I felt terrible. Like I had traumatized them. Yeah. Why? Right. Why am I doing? I'm participating in this. You are. It's all your fault, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, but but the whys and all TV about this is a good point because like when people try to marginalize stories about motherhood, I'm like, okay, well, look at the TV you're watching. A lot of the TV you love is compelling storytelling about family. Mm. Like you've got The Americans. That is a family drama, transparent. Like Atlanta is about a dad. You know, Pamela Adlon has done a really great job of bringing periods to the forefront Mm -hmm. of television. Um, And the thing is also that like a lot of this stuff is hilarious. It's not just like a horrible struggle. It's both. And they're both extremes. Like, I don't know about you, but I feel like before I became a mom, like I never experienced my life like fully through extremes. Like everything (laughs) is one extreme or the other. Like, and it makes for great storytelling. So I also think that it's very possible to tell a boring story about, you know, like a murder. (laughs) And like, conversely, it's very possible to tell compelling stories about mothers. It's just people don't think of it that way. They they think that the subject matter innately is either interesting or not. Right. And also, of course, making the mistake of thinking that only other mothers are going to be interested in stories about mothers, right. which is not true. Yeah. First of all, even if it were true, there's a lot of mothers. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a, <laughs> exactly. That's a general audience. Yeah. <laughs> like if you were only reaching all the mothers, right? that's more than enough people. That's a consumer group. It is. You know, but but it is not the case at all. And let's come back to the longest, shortest time. You know, you have, I don't know, are you able to know who is listening and how many people? And it's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Do you it's have any people. idea how many? Yeah, we can't share that. Okay, um, sorry. No, uh, but I, it is all over the country. Yep. And the world. We have international listeners as well. It's hard to say on certain demographics, but like if you look at our Facebook page, it is mostly women following us. But when I'm out in the world and I'm like at events and people are coming up to me and saying, I listen to your show, it's not all women and it's not all moms either. Mm -hmm. Like I've had college students come up to me and say, I listen. college boys saying like, I don't know why, but I find this really compelling. (laughs) There's like a high school student who's trans who um, interacts with us um, on Instagram and actually has a win in the book. So yeah, it's, there's a lot of diversity in the listeners. Okay. So just to go back for one second, the Kickstarter passed, you even succeeded. Uh, exceeded your goal. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you did initially start working with WNYC Mm -hmm. um, to put it out. But then you went independent from them. My show got dropped halfway through my contract. Yes. Fascinating. (laughs) And I can't get into the details of that. But I think there was some of this going on Mm -hmm. of like, we're just not able to market this kind of thing. Got it. I was free agent. And I pitched the show around. And that is when I started hearing again, like, this is too small. Mm. But I did get offers. I got a lot of offers in that round, too, because people had seen not just the storytelling potential, but the the marketing potential and the potential to bring in money. So I went to Midroll, which at that time was really um, just the Earwolf Network, which is a comedy network. And I was the first journalistic property that they picked up. And they brought me in 
because they wanted other journalists who were making podcasts to look at it and say like, oh, maybe I could go there. So they weren't just like, okay, we can take you. They wanted me to be a leader there. Mm -hmm. And having me there helped to develop um, the other side of mid-roll, which is Stitcher. So that's more of the narrative properties that they have. And so now this is your full-time job. This is my full-time job. I stopped hosting the show a year ago to become the editor and executive producer and um, passed the torch to Andrea Salenzi and while I was working on this book. And yeah, now I'm even I'm I'm even further removed. I've stopped editing the show for a little while so that I can promote the book. This is the first book you've published since your daughter was born, correct? That's right. Okay. But since you've been a mom, you have primarily been working on this show. Mm-hmm. And now you have a book again. Yeah. So I guess when your daughter was really little, um, I know that the desire to talk to other mothers, have a community to feel less alone was a really big part of it. But was it also a formal choice? Was there something that worked for you in particular because you could have written during her naps. Yeah, I think that felt exhausting. Mm. The idea of like using my brain to have to form words perfectly. I couldn't imagine doing that. And I definitely couldn't imagine writing fiction. Mm-hmm. It just felt too exhausting. I was actually, um, when my daughter was born, I was a co-founder of a podcast called The Truth, which is a fiction podcast. Mm-hmm. And I had to stop working on it because I was like, I just can't, my brain can't invent things. I can't invent worlds and characters and stuff. And all I can do is like what I know right now. And I think, you know, the way that I did the podcast at that time, because I wasn't really working with an editor, um, I was just working by myself mostly. And so the way I did it um, was a lot looser than I had done radio in the past. And instead of writing things down, I would write some bullet points and then I would perform my narration by working with the bullet points. I would just sit on my bed with a microphone and do it a few different times. And then I'd go and like cut it together. And then if I thought something was missing, I'd just go back and do it again. And I would probably do a total of like three rounds mm-hmm. before I had something I wanted to put out. Um, So that might sound exhausting (laughs) because I'm going back and forth. But to me, it was something my brain could handle. Mm -hmm. And what led you to want to write and publish Weird Parenting Wins and not just have it be either a a regular segment of Longest Shortest Time or, you know, a few special episodes? Like, why go back to the book? Yeah. um, So I think when I had my daughter... I had read a lot of books on how to be a good parent and, you know, things like how to soothe your baby, how to get them to sleep, how to get them to breastfeed. And they all made me feel like I was doing it wrong Mm -hmm. because, you know, a lot of these books are written in such a my way or the highway perspective. And it made me feel like um, I was at the most vulnerable moment in my life and I had barely begun to become a parent and I had already failed at it. You know, they were not helping me. And the things that I found were helping were like 
things that I just came up with in moments of desperation, like trial and error, things that friends had told me had worked for them. And I made a blog post on The Longest Shortest Time uh, in 2013. So my daughter must have been around like two, three. It just like suddenly occurred to me that all the things that had worked for me were these random things that I had just invented. And I asked the audience, well, what have you come up with? What what works for you? And everything was so hilarious. And I was like, people could really benefit from this stuff. And I felt like there was a project there, but I didn't know what it was. And I just kept asking for these things and eventually came up with a name for them, Weird Parenting Wins, and asked people to keep sending them in. And I got to a place where I was like, I think this can be a book. And I felt like it would be good in the form of a book because I know that people look for books Mm -hmm. when they're trying to get help with parenthood. Um, They might not think to turn to a podcast. And this is a thing they could just keep by their bedside when they're going out of their minds, you know, in the middle of the night. Um, Would you read us a little bit? Yes. Great. Happily. We have an emergency family emoji. If one of my teenagers uses it in a text and they're at a friend's house, it means I need to come get them right away. If they text me a question with the emoji, it means I need to answer no. They need me to be the bad guy sometimes so they don't lose face in front of their friends. It gives them an easy out, and I am not allowed to ask questions. I just get them out of dangerous situations. They know that if they text me that emoji, I will be there. No questions asked. And all of these were crowdsourced through the longest, right. shortest time. Right. Okay. Read us another one. Okay. So this one's probably my favorite from Maggie in Lynchburg, Virginia. Parenting is hardest when you're sick and just need to lie down, but you have a toddler who hasn't yet developed empathy and independence. My solution is to come up with games that require me to lie still with my eyes closed. My personal favorite is what's on my butt, which involves the kid finding household objects and putting them on my butt while I lie face down on the couch. I then have to close my eyes and guess what's on my butt. It's a hit. Kids love saying butt and I love naps. I also love that one. Um, You talked about it a little bit on on Fresh Air. One of the games that my father played with me as a child was Miami Beach. Did I ever tell you about Miami Beach? No, tell me about Miami Beach. It's a really complicated game, which I only came to understand when I became a parent. So it usually happens in mid-afternoon. And your father says, do you want to play Miami Beach? And it's like the funnest thing ever. And you say yes. And then you both lie down on the floor and you look up at the lights. And then dad says, first time Miami? And then you say, yeah. And then you literally just lie down and talk to each other about like as if you're on the beach. It's the same game. Yeah. It's just that you're lying. You're lying down. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I did. I totally I just I mean, you know, as a kid, what I remember was just that this was a game that every once in a while he would suggest and I had his full attention. Yeah. Or at least I thought I did. So, yes, I love what's on your butt. Mm hmm. Really good one. Okay, here's one more. Good. All right. My eight year old son is a really, really picky eater. He's also got an eagle eye for veggies or other nutritious sneakiness hidden in his food. So sometimes I put spinach in the marinara sauce or a little bit of avocado in his hummus. And then we have fancy dinner. I will announce that it's a fancy dinner night. 
We get out the good china and the fancy crystal goblets. We sit in the dining room, and most importantly, we turn off all the lights and eat by candlelight, which, by the way, makes it harder for him to see all the tiny details of his food. That's from Jillian in Knoxville, Tennessee. Awesome. Okay, so I love this book. Um, I wish it had been around when I first had kids. And one of the things I really love about it is exactly, as you said, so many other parenting books, and I read a lot of them, made me feel terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't so easy to avoid the terrible ones because sometimes the terrible ones had important information that I did appreciate, mm-hmm. like the Sears books, mm-hmm. you know, those were helpful books to me in certain ways, but there was an underlying assumption that wasn't even underlying. There was an assumption that if the mother, uh, not the father, right. if the mother just basically was with her child day and night and then they would never cry and nothing would ever be wrong and everything was fine, but like nobody can go to work in that right. situation. Um, and I remember reading that and and just thinking, well, a lot of this makes sense to me, like being in close physical contact with my child and trying to soothe him. But how am I ever going to go out of the house? Mm-hmm. So not to mention that even if you do spend all your time with the kid, they might still cry a lot. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I I didn't have this experience, but my best friend, her son was just really colicky and she literally just held him in the baby, you know, carrier, skin to skin contact all the time. And he just cried. He just cried for like six weeks. Mm-hmm. She was holding him. Come on. Yep. So you've been an author of fiction, an illustrator, mm-hmm. a podcaster, you know, an, an audio contributor, and now an author of a nonfiction book. Do those different forms necessitate or encourage different levels of truth and truthfulness? Are there things and different kinds of um, transgressions of one's own privacy? Um, Do you feel like there are things that you would never say on your podcast, but you did write in this book, or vice versa, things that you can imagine you know, saying on the podcast, but for some reason you wouldn't want to have in writing. So the cool thing about fiction is that you can borrow from real life and then disguise it or uh, heighten it or make it whatever you want. And then when you're doing nonfiction, like you can't help but, you know, design it to be how you want it to be, but you you have to stick closer to a remembered truth. I think that there's a little bit of a misinterpretation of The Longest Shortest Time by some people who don't know it very well, thinking that it is entirely a personal project. It came out of a personal experience, and I told my own personal story early on, and then I didn't for a long time. And it's a tool that I have that I I have pulled out at different times minimally to like if we're talking about a topic that I'm like, I kind of have something to say about this. I might offer an anecdote or I might go further than that. But it's really not been about me and I never wanted it to be. There are a lot of stories for as much as I have talked about myself on the show, I'm holding back probably 10 other things that I could have said that felt too personal to express either because I don't want to have to say those things out loud, or I don't want uh, my daughter to have to hear those things somewhere down the line because it's more her story. In 
weird parenting wins when I was writing it, I had all my like chapter topics that I wanted to write about. And a lot of them were really obvious. You know, it was sleeping and eating and communication and siblings. And then I knew I wanted to have a chapter on the sex lives of parents. One of the most popular things we've done on the longest, shortest time is to have a sex and parenthood series. And, you know, like our trademark is being bold and talking about things that, that other people don't talk about in parenthood. So I knew I wanted this chapter on the sex lives of parents, but I have essays in each chapter that are related to the topic, personal essays. And I left chapter 10, the sex chapter blank for a long time. And I was just like, I can't, what am I going to say about this? I'm going to, I'm going to write about my sex life. I've never done that before. Never wanted to do that. But then I realized like, I was like, well, what would I write if I was going to write the thing and like not even judge what it was, what would I write? And what I imagined writing, I could hear the lines in my head and they were both like horrible and hilarious. And I was like, I think I could do this pretty well. <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to write it. I'm just going to write it and see what I think. And I wrote it faster than I probably wrote anything else in the book. It just came out really easily. And I didn't even think about it really. And I just sent it to my editor. And I kind of thought, oh, well, I'll have time to change it if I want to. And somehow it just kept going through the process. And I never changed it. I never showed it to my husband. And it just went out there. And the thing that I didn't think about at the time was that I was going to have to say it out loud because I was going to have to record the audiobook. <laughs> uh huh. And I was going to have to read it. And so now I've performed it twice because I did it for the audiobook. And I also did it for the podcast, How It Is, which is from Hello Sunshine Reese Witherspoon's network. I did that because a friend and colleague named Amy Choi works over there, and she convinced me that it should be for their show on the theme of souvenirs. And she convinced me that my episiotomy scar was my souvenir from childbirth. And I thought, well, that's such a creative interpretation of that. And I totally trust Amy and what they're doing over there. So I said I would do it. So between that and the audiobook. I read it out loud so many times that the words stopped meaning anything to me. Mm. And it was kind of a cool way to process all of that. But you're saying that initially it felt much harder to say it out loud yeah. than to write it. And I would still not do an interview where I talk about it uh -huh. because it feels like too vulnerable to talk about it with another person mm -hmm. that I don't know. Or even to like put it out there for people to consume as a conversation. Mm -hmm. Writing it down made it so that I could figure out what, where all the punchlines were. So you could control it yeah. more. Yeah. And what was your husband's response when it came out? So I was like, <laughs> before it went out to other people, I was like, oh, you should probably read this one chapter before other people do. Uh -huh. And he was like, oh, that's um, it's very intimate. But, you know, it's your story, really. So, you know, I come out as the hero. Mm -hmm. Like, it's fine with me. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that's a really big part of this, which is, you know, what would have happened if he wasn't, if he didn't come out looking okay? Mm -hmm. My guess is you would never have published it. Mm -hmm. um, so the 
violation of privacy was still there um, and it was still intimate and it was still doing the work of breaking taboos in a way that's meaningful to you. But in a way, you were the one at the greatest risk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you've done amazing work about uh, talking about race and racism, um, usually in the context or there's some connection to um, parenthood, mm-hmm. but the topics are all over the place. I mean, one of my favorite sub sort of sub series is the one that you did about um, the gay dads and the transgender mm-hmm. um, father. And it it was so intimate and it was so well done and it was so respectful. And yet there were some consequences, some negative consequences to that. And in the last episode, they talk a little bit about being exposed and being more public. And I guess when you are on the other side of the mic, when you're asking the questions or now when you're working with Andrea, isn't it your job to some extent to push people a little bit to go to those intimate places? First of all, because it makes a good story. And also because that's part of what, as you said, the show is really about known for being bold, known for telling the kinds of stories and in the kind of detail that other people don't usually do. But do you have moments when you're just sitting there listening to someone, even if you haven't pushed them, like they're telling their story and you're just thinking, I would not say that. I mean, I don't, you might've felt that with me even when I was there. So a couple things. Um, I wouldn't say that my goal is to get them to say things they wouldn't want to say. In fact, I warn people or not warn people, but I I tell them before we start recording, you know, I'm going to ask you personal questions. Um, If I ask you a question that you don't want to answer, just let me know. We'll move on. This is something I learned from Terry Gross, actually. While I want people to be real with me, they come on the show knowing that we're going to go in a personal direction, but I definitely don't want to push them past their boundaries. But then the other part of that, hearing people say things, I don't think I think, oh, I wouldn't have said that. I just think everyone has different levels of comfort in what they reveal about Mm -hmm. themselves. And I want people to feel like... um, we're representing them fairly and in, in in a way that they would present themselves when they're having a real conversation. That said, like if I'm interviewing a politician or a public figure, it's a little different, but I'm not doing that very often. Mm-hmm. You know, to some extent, anything a parent says about their parenting, children are too young to give consent or we don't even bother to ask them. And I don't really know what to do with that when you put it next to what we started talking about, which is if you don't talk about motherhood, if you don't really talk about what happens to your body, the boredom, um, the physical discomforts of not just birth, but, you know, early parenting, um, the kind of what it does for many women to their identity, to their sense of self, certainly to their sex life, to their relationships, um, to their friendships. If you don't talk about, you know, those things openly, nobody knows about them. Everybody ends up feeling alone. Everyone feels like they're doing it terribly. They're doing it wrong. They're the only one who's failing at this and they're failing all the time. But as soon as you start talking about motherhood, by definition, you're talking about more than one person. Where does that put the other person? 
Yeah, but everything you just said was framed as being about the person experiencing it, mm -hmm. not about the person in relationship to the mother. Mm -hmm. So I've tried to be careful about that when talking about my own story. And the stuff that I do reveal about my daughter is like before she really had any agency <laughs> in these things. Lately, I've tried to be more careful, mm -hmm. even about like the cute stories. Like for a while, I was recording her saying like cute things like would you rathers and stuff um, and putting them on the show where she didn't know that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I do regret that. Um, she later found out that it went on the podcast and she was like, what? I don't want people listening to that. And so we have a new rule and by default, I'm just like not talking about her and I'm not putting her on. But if there's something I would, I would like to get her permission on, I'll ask her and she knows she can say no. Mm -hmm. This is su just super confusing to me. I and mean, we came up against this when we were on a panel together. You know, I, on the one hand, I feel like, you know, now my kids are 19, 18 and 11. So all of them are older than your daughter. And Part of me feels like it has gotten more and more complicated and more and more difficult, even though I can now ask them, can you read this? Is this okay? Or can you listen to this? Or what kinds of things can I write about or not write about, mention on the podcast, not mention on the podcast? So on, on the one hand, I can talk to them and we could have rules and that gets easier. On the other hand, it does seem to be harder and harder because they are people, you know, they're, they're more fully formed people. But at the same time, if anything, the urgency that I felt in early parenthood has returned to me, especially in the mid and late teenage years. I feel that that's something that people, again, like I'm starting to hear in part because you've made a form for it and a forum and an audience. I'm starting to hear a lot more diversity and honesty and authenticity in the conversations that people will have about early parenthood. But I don't really hear people talking about the kinds of teenage experiences that I really need. And so I do feel it feels urgent. It feels difficult and taboo in a new way. And I don't really know what to do with that, you know, where to go with that. And so my, you know, my next book is coming out and it's got stuff about my family as did my other books, but now my kids are older. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so that's the other thing, something you asked early on that, that we never really addressed was like how we um, yeah. came to know each other. And I was a fan of your book, Museum of Accidents. How um, did you get that? Who, who, where? So someone, a friend of mine who I actually interviewed on the show named Joanne Diaz is a poet. She teaches poetry in Illinois. And I asked her, like, is there any poetry you'd recommend about motherhood? Mm. I think your book was maybe the only thing she sent to me. <laughs> um, were you a poetry reader? Were you a writer? No, you I'm not. I'm not. Um, you know, this is a show about poetry. No, that's poets, okay. But I, yeah, I haven't typically loved poetry. I like more prosy poetry. Maybe your next book should be poetry because <laughs> nobody reads it. <laughs> yeah. You can say anything you want. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah. 
Um, but she just told me she thought I would I would like your book, uh-huh. and she was right. And I started sending it to like any friends who had had miscarriages, mm-hmm. and I had one friend respond to it and say like. At first, I didn't know why you thought this would hit the spot. And then, like, suddenly I was bawling and I knew why. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then we met at this, like, podcast conference at yeah. Columbia. And I had been such a fan of your show. And when they asked me to be to come and talk on that panel, I was like, I thought it was a joke. I literally thought somebody was pranking me (laughs) with the email because I had just started Commonplace, you know, not that long before and I had no experience Mm -hmm. and I thought it was hilarious and I was like, sure. And then I saw that you were on this panel and I just could not believe it. And then it really was an amazing moment for me to meet you and then have you say, oh yeah, I read your book and Mm -hmm. I've given it to people as a gift. And I was like, (laughs) wait a second. Um, Because I think that there is some uh, something interesting about about being in a position it's not exactly the same for both of us but we're not celebrities mm-hmm. but we're also we do have a public life yeah and the public life that we have is very connected mm-hmm. um in maybe in different um amounts or in different ways or different styles to our private lives mm-hmm. and the, and that part of our public life was very much about thinking about that line between the private life and the public life and who was that serving and, Mm -hmm. and was that helping us and that, but then having to negotiate, having entered into a public life with private material. Mm -hmm. And how do you feel about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've been on Fresh Air, you've been on this other podcast, but you haven't started doing live readings. Have you from Weird Parenting Wins? Not yet. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to be interested to know what that feels like to you, whether it feels differently exposing. So here's the thing. Most of the events I'm doing include children because mm. we're doing them at bookstores in the middle of the afternoon. I want them to be kid friendly. And so I'm not really going to do like a typical reading. I think I'm going to do a little like, here's why I made the book real quick. And then we're going to do demonstrations of wins in the book. Uh-huh. And We'll do a little what's on my butt. We'll do a little like you can put as much lipstick all over your face as you want if if you go for a hike. Um, <laughs> we'll do a little like I feel like I'm going to scream. So let's put some duct tape over your mouth and draw a smile on with a Sharpie. I'm going to do stuff like that. But um, I'm going to leave the reading of the private stuff to people to do in private. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I think about the path of my life, so much of it has to do with circumstances. And so many of those circumstances had to do with being a mom. So, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do exactly. I ended up going to uh, get an MFA in writing. I moved back to New York. I was teaching prose composition. I couldn't get my book published. And so I was like, well, I need a real job. And so I was in psychology graduate school and I got pregnant for the second time unexpectedly. And, you know, so many of the things, you know, I was a doula for a while. And then once my third child was born, when I was pregnant with Judah, I had so much morning sickness that I really couldn't be in a hospital um, and I couldn't be a good doula. Um, so then I thought, well, I really love to be in the birth world. I'll train to be a childbirth educator 
in part because you can teach those classes at night and on the weekends. And I realized like things shifted for me and being home in those after school hours was really, really important to me. So it's not like, oh, I had a passion to be this or this. Mm -hmm. Yes, to some extent. But to another extent, it was these were really practical decisions along the way that had to do with like being a mom and how old my kids were and what my husband was doing and, you know, what was going to fit the family. How much of where you are right now, taking a, a slight break from The Longest Shortest Time, having written this book, and then planning these particular kinds of readings is because that works for you as a mom? Oh, man, so much of it. Like, So my schedule when I was hosting The Longest Shortest Time was I'd like get my daughter ready for school, send her off, like take her to the bus stop, come back home, either work from home or go into the city and work from the office and just be interviewing people and writing scripts. And it's like really fast paced. We were on one deadline or another every day, but whether it's a script or uh, recording or posting or whatever. And so just constant deadlines. And then my daughter goes to aftercare and then I pick her up at like five or six come back home, make dinner, put her to bed, be working again by like 8.30 or 9, work until midnight or 1. Mm. And that was every day. And I would work on the weekends too. I wasn't able to go to like gatherings, parties, anything. Like I was just missing everything. And um, it was weird. It was like, you know, I was talking so much about parenthood, but not being able to experience it a lot. <laughs> Yes. And I knew that I needed to pull back a little bit. And in some ways, like the book was a way to do that. Mm. And I think that that's why you you listed a couple of times now, like all the different things that I do. Mm. And part of that is just like hitting a wall, I think, with doing the same thing over and over again on these tight deadlines, because all of it is really deadline driven, um, even when I'm drawing. And so I can sort of like power through on a project basis. But then when it's like, this is going to be the rest of my career every day for years on end, it's hard to really wrap my head around that and embrace it. So a lot of it is about just needing to mix it up. And I think that when I do mix it up, I'm able to take like what I learned from the last round and feed it into the next round. Do you have any sense of what is coming in the future? Yeah, I'm I'm like batting around an idea that I'm not ready to talk about because I'm really just starting to bat it around. But like I can tell you I'm feeling a pull toward fiction again mm -hmm. and, and teenagers. So for yeah. a YA audience or not not Maybe necessarily not. Maybe not. I mean, I look at things like Big Mouth and it just sort of blows my mind that that's considered for a general audience because when I was writing fiction about teenagers, I was told like only teenagers will want to consume this maybe in the same way that like people say only mothers would want to consume work about mothers. And, and maybe that's true. But I also think it's possible to do work because adults have all been teenagers at one point. Do you think that your decision to write your first three books for a YA audience, was there any part of that 
that was a useful limitation for you? Like if you knew you were, there were certain things you couldn't write about for a teen audience, it also meant you weren't going to be a person who published a book that maybe your parents or somebody might read and then you could never get a job or do you know what I mean? Like there was a limit, a built-in limitation. Like almost the opposite actually, because everyone assumes that when you're writing a main character that it's you. And so I was afraid. I was like writing about these sort of racy things. I was sort of like breaking boundaries in YA literature too at the time. My first book was about um, a girl, a freshman in college who loses her virginity to this guy dressed as the devil. And Mm. that was not a thing that was happening in YA fiction. And I was afraid that people were going to read it and be like, oh, that happened to you, (laughs) you know? Um, And I just had to get over it, I think. It's so fascinating to me that I can't tell you um, has this totally radical form where nothing is said out loud Mm -hmm. um, and it's all written notes in the margins and, and passed between. And then you became this audio person Mm -hmm. where everything is said out loud. And then you wrote this parenting book where so much of it is, is written, but it is clearly like not the essay parts, but the crowdsourced parts feel very spoken to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and that you've kind of gone back and forth between uh, almost misusing each genre. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like to be experimental. Mm -hmm. I like to play with form and I think that it, sort of draws the eye in and makes people want to experience the work. Like my first book, Better Than Running at Night, I wrote as a short story in college. Mm. And maybe that's the thing that made me feel confident enough to say I was a writer. I I like won my like fiction award at my college for writing that. And the way that I came up with the forum was I was just sitting in these classes, this will sound familiar to you, I think, where you're sitting in these like writing workshop classes and people are like passing around their work and everyone's reading it and everyone looks bored out of their minds. And you're like forced to talk about it afterwards and no one knows what to say. And some people try to sound smart. And I wanted to really write something in a college class that other kids would want to read, that that they would feel excited to read it and talk about it and not feel like we were just going through the motions. And so mm-hmm. I decided I would do that with form. And so it was a short story, but I wrote it in these vignettes mm-hmm. and they were they were anywhere from like a paragraph long to a few pages long. And each one had a title and I did a drawing to go with each title. And the combination of the drawing and the title would like raise a question of like, what is this about? And it worked like for the first time since I had been in these writing workshops, I was, I was a senior. So I had been through four years of these things. Kids asked me if they could keep mm. their copy. They didn't mm. hand it back to me. And I felt like, oh, maybe I was onto something there. And that's one thing. I love that story. You know, it reminds me of something I didn't ask, which is, do you think there's a different set of expectations or issues around visual representation? In the same way that, you know, are there things that you uh, would write but not say out loud, things that you'd say out loud but not write? And are there things that you feel like there's something inherently not okay about drawing certain things or drawing in certain styles? Or do you feel like 
we know when we encounter visual media that it's not a photograph. And so there's a distance, a kind of inherent distance that allows you to be more intimate or no? I'm sure if like my main job was illustrating, I would have those kinds of feelings, but I do it in such a limited way with a particular style that it doesn't feel like I'm taking big risks. It feels like it's just punctuating and making things funnier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you imagine a world in which your daughter was growing up, but it's like 20 years from now or 50 mm -hmm. years from now, and the conversation has become so much more open that you wouldn't have some of the same concerns about being more public um, with certain things? Or do you think it's actually just inherent that there are always going to be limitations that if you have a kid and you say stuff, you know, you record them and you put it on the air and they find out that they're always going to say, hey, I don't, that's, that's not so cool. Yeah. I mean, I think the truth is I'm a pretty private person mm -hmm. and I have been able to like craft what I share. And in some ways, some of the stuff is like I'm performing these things, both because I think it'll help me to do so and other people. I don't see that changing based on like societal norms. And I don't think that my point of view on like how much I want to share about my daughter would change either. I think I would always be pretty committed to putting that in her hands. Mm -hmm. Do you have any questions for me about anything or anything you want to make sure I know or that mm. anyone else knows that needs to know? Well, what do you think about this line between what goes through your head and what feels like a good story versus what you want to put out for public consumption? I feel super confused about it. To some extent, I started a podcast thinking that it would be so much safer because I wouldn't reveal anything about the person I was talking to because they were the ones talking in their own voice. And then I realized that there's a whole new set of responsibilities and trust that goes along with this. Since I mostly am talking to writers, writers are often people who depend upon being able to edit the things that they put mm -hmm. out into the world. And so if they're on my podcast, I have to then figure out how to edit or not edit for them. I mean, one thing that's really interesting to me is that I'm just starting now to try to put these poems that became prose to make audio pieces out of them. And I don't want them to just be an audiobook version where I'm just reading it out loud. And one of the things that I'm noticing is that there's a lot of stuff I'm taking out and why is that? What is it about the performative nature of the voice or the intimacy of speaking one-on-one, -on -one, you know, to somebody that I imagine listening with headphones or, or why I think they seem meaner when you say them out loud? Yeah. So, so that was a follow-up question I was going to ask you, which is like, what is the difference for you in being someone who has typically written things down and now starting to say things out loud. I'm going to throw in another one on top of that, which is 
because I know your complicated relationship with your mom and she was so performative and said her stories out loud. That was her job. Like, does that bring anything up for you too? Yeah, so, so much. You know, the first one, we've made a 10-minute demo and I picked a piece called The Moon is in Her Call Tonight and it is about the five-year anniversary of my mother's death. And and it's the sort of piece starts off where I'm listening to Allen Ginsberg. Uh, I'm watching Allen Ginsberg talking to William F. Buckley on Firing Line. And there's a lot of stuff I kind of admit in the poem, including like I use the word vagina in the poem several times, both because I have a vagina, but also because Allen Ginsberg in the poem that he reads on Firing Line, you know, is is talking about vaginas, the vagina moist ground. But also the sort of crescendo of the piece is that I'm imagining that my mother's spirit is there on this her, her the anniversary of her death last year was during the supermoon lunar eclipse mm. it was that same night and i got really freaked out i was alone in mcdowell uh and i got really freaked out that like her spirit was gonna like come wow. get me it's intense yeah and then i was like is alan ginsburg with her like <laughs> you know anyway so we made this audio version of it with music and and sound and there's like a lunar sound and wind sounds and stuff and it's pretty intense i mean the piece is intense without it but it's like it's a different experience and moses my oldest son is someone who i really respect as a listener as an artist as a as somebody who listens to a lot of podcasts and a lot of audio, he's also a musician. He offers me really good feedback. And I asked him to listen to it. And I was nervous. I was like, well, so there's all those things I just mentioned that he's going to hear. And what was super interesting was that the feedback that he was most nervous to give me, and you could hear he was like really tentative was that I sound like my mom, just that my voice and and that I'm sounding more and more like my mom. And how does it feel to me to hear my voice? You know, when when Moses was six weeks old, I went to my best friend's wedding and I got up there and I started, I made a really funny long toast about her. And there was this baby that would not stop crying. I just kept thinking, who? why isn't anyone shutting this baby up? <laughs> a lot of people said, oh, he was crying because he heard your voice and he like mm-hmm. recognized your voice. So this is a very long way of getting back to saying like, I think that there are so many ways in which it's not just the content of what I reveal in a poem or in audio or on the podcast. It's not like the necessarily the, the specifics about my kids, like who they are, what they do, you know, their issues, their questions, their cute things, their confusing things. I think there's also something that's inherently weird and uncomfortable in having a mother or a parent who's a performer of any kind, because I'm not his mom in those moments. And I think that's something that probably affects most parents and children, like seeing your parent at work or seeing your parent in another context. Like it's not just weird and gross to like 
catch your parents having sex or hear them or whatever, or to think about it. But it's also just that that's like not your mom. That's not your parent. They're like in this other part of their life. And I think that that's part of what was even at age 19, a little bit strange for him. And that certainly was my experience of my mother over and over again, of like seeing her being physically close to her, but feeling she was unreachable and she wasn't my mom. She was this other being. Do you have advice for me on, because <laughs> um, I feel like my daughter's getting to an age where it's time for me to start telling her more about like the story of how she got here. And I want her to hear it from me and not from somebody else and not from reading it in the book. Do you have advice on how to do that or how not to do that? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'm the right person because my advice for sure, and I don't usually like to give advice at all, yeah. but is to just be honest. I mean, I guess I feel like one of the most valuable things I did as a doula was to write up the story of the mom's birth and the baby's birth. And I would never say like, you know, if someone had a postpartum hemorrhage, I certainly would include that in the birth story. I wouldn't say like, it was gruesome, yeah. you know, because first of all, that wasn't my perspective. But also, I certainly would say, this was a scary moment. No one knew what to do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the next nurse that came in was really mean. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I, I would include those details. And some of the moms whose births I attended read those stories to their kids. Mm. Um, and it's like a ritual and they've read them, you know, every That's year. Interesting. My midwife did that. She wrote it all down like mm -hmm. that. And I know that there are moments where she's like, Hillary was so strong. I think she mm. kept writing that over and over again. I wonder if that could be useful for me. I mean, I wonder if like sharing that with her and then stopping and saying like, you know, it's so interesting because that's not actually how I remember it. I mm -hmm. rem So that she has a sense, first of all, that like there's lots of different people who have different experiences, but also mm -hmm. even of the experience of her birth. Like she doesn't remember it, but she had her own experience of her mm -hmm. own birth. And I'm sure your husband had a slightly different experience yeah. than yours and then hers and the midwives. And I don't know, I guess I feel like even though as much as I was worried about hurting my mother, I am exponentially more worried about hurting my children. Mm -hmm. And yet I do feel that, you know, whenever you hear these stories about families where like nobody ever told the kid that there was like another child that was stillborn or, mm -hmm. you know, that they were a twin and then that, you know, twin didn't make it or like whatever mm -hmm. these family secrets are, it seems to me, not that this is a secret, but it seems like not telling something or not giving that information seems to cause a lot of harm because you imagine, you know, because you don't know, because, you know, like even the way that we've as a culture come to understand that like people didn't usually didn't tell kids if they were adopted. And now very few people would make that choice. Like mm -hmm. that's that's considered to be not the healthiest way for most families mm -hmm. to, you know, to lie. <laughs>
like I just read your book. So I know that you know about how to like not give more information than the kid wants or to let them ask the questions and have it be on their terms. So I can't imagine you doing that thing that, you know, you sometimes hear about or see in movies where people are like, I thought I would die. You <laughs> almost killed me. <laughs> Even if that is partly true, yeah. because most women do feel at some point in their labor, I, I thought I was going to die. I did say that on Fresh Air. Yeah. But I also think that that, I don't think that that's... You can say I felt like I was going to die without saying I felt like you were doing this to me. Right. And also, I guess, what a gift in a way, like to say... I there were moments I thought I was going to die when I was giving birth to you. And obviously, I did not die. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, that was a feeling. And that's part of what makes me such a strong mom is that I had that experience. And you thought you were strong before you were strong before and now you're strong in a different way. It wasn't like, oh, the birth proved that you weren't strong. Mm -hmm. I mentioned to you when you first came in that my son's friend was here and she's this like amazing, smart, funny, creative, beautiful woman. I was really surprised and have been almost to, to a one really shocked at how little my son's female friends know about birth and their own reproductive like health. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, that seems pretty scary to me, but I, I, I was that person too. Yeah. I didn't know. Sure. So I feel like, you know, she had kind of like a scared face when I was saying some of the stuff and I wasn't either trying to idealize it or scare her, but I feel like I wish that I had had a lot more information from a really young age. And, and the, la the last thing I'll say about this is that it was my birthday a few weeks ago mm -hmm. and it was a pretty terrible birthday in part because my husband and my sons did nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would call that a parenting fail. But a good friend of mine who was on your podcast, Ariel Greenberg, called me and said, I have a present I want to give you. I want to pay for you to go to an astrologist and get your chart done. And it's such a kooky idea and like really a good present for me and like good present on my birthday and all this stuff. And nobody alive knows what time I was born. My mom has died and it's not on my birth certificate. And my dad can't remember. And I called the astrologist and I was like, well, how important is it for me to know what time I was born? And she was like, really important. And there are so many questions, not that you're going to die, but there are so, so many questions that I wish I could ask my mom right now about my own birth, about what her experience was like when I was really little, about menopause, about like how old she was, about what her experience was like. And Maybe she told me some of those things and I wasn't ready, so I don't remember and I didn't hear it. But I guess I feel like those things get lost. And it's part of her and it's part of your relationship. And it's part of like who you've become. Mm -hmm. I actually find it a little bit exciting. Like she's almost nine and we're starting to have more just in-depth conversations and it doesn't 
seem weird at all. Mm -hmm. We are, we're starting to talk about like, you know, periods because I know kids get them younger now and I don't want it to take her by surprise. And she has a lot of questions about it. And like, it's, it feels like we're getting ready. Like we talk about death all the time. I don't know. We, we go deep. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important thing for me to remember which is I spend so much time thinking about the things I shouldn't have said or, you know, being worried that I'll say too much and and asking other artists, like, what are the things you would never say? But there are a lot of things, like I, like I even said before about like my own period, like things I didn't say to my kids that mm-hmm. I wish I had. Mm-hmm. And those things I think, you know, so instead of just feeling bad about, you know, did I say too much? I think there's also... It's not like, oh, now I should just feel bad about all the things I didn't say. The point is not to always feel as badly as possible. Yeah. But, you know, to feel like some of a lot of the things I said were really important things to say. Mm -hmm. You know. Okay. Should we stop? We should stop. We should totally stop. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was so generous and wonderful of you. And I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rachel. Okay. You've been listening to episode 65 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. This episode featured Hilary Frank. The Commonplace team includes myself, Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, Doreen Wang, and Becca DiGregorio. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. Original music was performed and recorded by Moses Zucker-Gorin. Many thanks to Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and Tarcher Perigee for the books they donated to the Commonplace Book Club. Thank you to all the publishers who support Commonplace. Thank you to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. And thank you, listener. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. <laughs>